This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. Good afternoon to you. I am Jason Kong. Still uh, got a little bug in my throat, but that's okay. We're going to power through here alongside Mary Lucas with Transitions Life Care. Mary, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm super excited about our episode today. It's a very timely topic, and I'm thrilled to kick it off. Yes, we are going to start out talking about what else? COVID-19. <laughs> we haven't done an update in a while, and uh, you know, it, it felt like heading into the winter that you know maybe this may be behind us. We could be turning the corner, but uh, Omicron shows up and things change. So we need to get an update, and we are very, very pleased to welcome on the show right now Dr. Daniel Fox, the medical director for pulmonary and critical care for the WakeMed Health System. Dr. Fox, thank you so much for taking some time to speak with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be on with you guys to talk about something that has consumed a whole lot of our uh, lives and time over the last couple of years, but uh, an important topic, as you said already. Yes, Dr. Fox, thank you for joining us. We know you guys are very busy at WakeMed. Uh, we are seeing in the news, we're setting some records in single-day COVID positivity rates and testing percentages, and we're dealing with this new variant, Omicron. What is the reality of what you and your team are seeing at WakeMed? Yeah, thanks for the, you know, kind of the, the lead in there. It, it, you know, it's a very busy time um, at, at the hospital right now, and I, and I, I think that's been you know, well described in the, you know, in the news media. And and a lot of what this is driven by is, is exactly what you said, which is the positivity rate that we see. So, uh, and, and what that means is that for every, you know, ten people that come in, uh, you know, with with some sort of symptoms, you know, respiratory symptoms, a cough, stuffy nose that that percentage of patients who test positive for the disease um, has gone up. And really what that is a marker for is just how prevalent this is in our community, you know, right now. Mm -hmm. And unlike other, unlike other, uh, you know, episodes or runs that we've had, whether it be Delta or some of the other earlier um, uh, variants of the disease, this one has come on us relatively quickly. So this, the steepness or the slope of that curve has been really, really impressive, you know, for us on the inpatient side. And what that has, meant for us is that the hospital has gone from a place of, you know, we're doing okay, we're, we've got plenty of beds, we've got plenty of capacity, to being very busy very, very quickly, and uh, a lot of patients sick at the same time. So that, that's just created a, a whole lot of strain, both in the emergency department and on the floors and ICU, certainly. So it's something we're waiting through and working through every day uh, with, with our leadership. And with the other uh, physicians uh, and, and nursing leaders. Mm -hmm. When we first started this pandemic, ventilators and ICUs and bed demands were of real concern. It's something that was all over the news across the country, across the world. Are you seeing lower acuity patients than previously with with Omicron? Yeah, th that's a great question, and and I think it's still as an ICU doctor, one of the things that is tough to tell is that. Um, is how patients look initially and then what they look like when they end mm -hmm. up in the ICU. We do get the sense that, you know, with Omicron, that it does seem to be a little uh, less severe disease, which is good. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, that's what we all want to see over time. 
Uh, many patients have very mild symptoms, but the patients that end up in the hospital, end up in the ICU, are still very sick. And, um, uh, you know, even though that's a relatively small percentage of the total number of people that have, you know, COVID right now, mm -hmm. th thankfully, mm -hmm. uh, it does mean that, um, you know, if you end up in the ICU, you're still at, you know, significant risk of, of having a bad outcome, which is obviously uh, terrifying to all of us. So, uh, what, what we're we're trying to do is to you know to keep people healthy, keep people well, and and to do everything we can to minimize their risk of getting to that super sick point where they need you know either the hospital or the ICU. Mm -hmm. When we talk about the ICU, what is the makeup of the patients that you're seeing currently who have COVID who are landing in the ICU? Or is it mostly unvaccinated? Are there pre-existing conditions? Different ages? Yeah, so it's it's a that's a great question. That's really the you know, from, from a kind of a public health point of view, and he really is a director, That's those are some of the most important things we're looking at. Um, there's no doubt that with this, you know, with Omicron, we've seen more breakthrough cases, uh, you know, of infection, meaning patients who have had their full vaccine, uh, uh, you know, uh, doses administered, and then, um, you know, that they'll still get, you know, test positive. What we aren't seeing, though, is the, that vaccinated population end up in the ICU. When I, I ran some numbers, about 24 hours ago to, in preparation for this and you know of all the patients on ventilators in our icus right now uh, none none had been vaccinated um now even though there are some patients in the hospital who have been back you know who have been vaccinated none of them are our sickest population um which is incredibly important for us to know so i, I think that vaccination still has a huge role of you know keeping you know in keeping people out of um, the biggest trouble and at the highest risk of death um you know, certainly when you think about the demographics, uh, that does tend to, to shift towards an older, you know, mm -hmm. patient population, our, our kind of average age right now in the ICU is in the, in the mid to upper 60s. Mm -hmm. But that's a, that's a very wide range. We've got patients down, a whole lot of patients in their, you know, 40s and 50s um, who have some other comorbidities. And we've actually seen a, a significant uptick in the pregnant population as well. We've mm -hmm. had uh, several, uh, you know, young pregnant women um, in, in the ICU who are very sick. And, um, you know, that, that's been a little bit of a shift for us. So, you know, it, there's certainly a range there. We see patients across the spectrum, but it does tend to trend towards the uh, unvaccinated and the older uh, demographic. Wow. I, I can't imagine what your staff is feeling after this two years of two years plus of this pandemic. Um, how is your staff feeling and what are some of the challenges that I, I know we hear about burnout, and our organization is definitely feeling that pain. Um, but are your staff facing the same challenges that many other organizations and industries are experiencing with shortages and, and that burnout? Yeah, it, man, such a timely topic. It's it's a it's a hard thing to talk about, and we you know I think in healthcare we don't always have the the right. Um, you know, training or experience to really know how to talk about this well. It, it is hard to care for people. It's hard to deal with people, you know, and families at the at the end of life and in stressful situations. And I think the last couple of years have really underscored that to, uh, you know, a lot of us in healthcare. Um, we we as as our as a group at Wake Med, we have tried to do some things to help, you know, recognize that and mitigate it. Um, we've got several, you know, true champions um, within our group and within our health system that are trying to help us with that uh, kind of in real time. Um, one thing that I that I do think is important, at least from our little part of the world, is you know the, the the term compassion fatigue has been used. You know where we just run out of compassion, and and I I think uh, you know one of the things I'm proud to say is that it, you know at Wake Med and certainly within our group of critical care providers, even though we've been tired, I've never seen the compassion actually drop off, mm -hmm. and um, 
and and that's that's important for me as a leader. I, I think if I ever begin begin to get to the point where I, I lose compassion, it's time to find another job because what we do is is rooted in compassion. I mean, really, it is. And uh, even though this is hard, and we've had a lot of hard conversations, and you know, there's a lot of um, you know things kind of in in the world around us, be it political or uh, you know uh, just kind of personal preference. There's all sorts of things that make this a loaded topic to talk about with patients and families. Mm-hmm. But, but compassion has to be at the core of what we do. And I, and I think that, you know, at least here locally, we've done a pretty good job of, of dealing with that, even through some really, you know, some dark days and some burnout, you know, burnt out providers. But um, we're, we're trying to do the self-care that we can do, but it's, it's certainly challenging. We are speaking with Dr. Daniel Fox. He is the medical director for pulmonary and critical care for the WakeMed Health System. And we're talking all about COVID-19 right now. And we're going to continue our conversation with him right after this stick around don't go anywhere you're listening to aging matters care and comfort that surrounds you a service of transitions life care it's your life your care on fm 98.5 am 680 wptf news talk traffic this is aging matters care and comfort that surrounds you on fm 98.5 am 680 wptf with your hosts, Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Hey, if you ever want to learn more about Transitions Life Care or want to find more resources, be sure to go online to transitionslifecare.org. Transitionslifecare.org. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas, our guest on the line, is Dr. Daniel Fox. He is the medical director for pulmonary and critical care for the Wake Med Health System, and we're talking all about COVID-19 right now. You know, I just heard this word the other day on the news, Deltacron. Uh, so, oh, gosh. <laughs> it sounds very yeah. aggressive. Um, but this is this new variant. Is it a real thing? Does it, it? I hear that it's combining Delta and Omicron. There's so many mutations and emerging variants. It seems to be changing all the time. Um, but Dr. Fox, from your experience, is Omicron more transmissible than the previous variants? And are there more to come? Is Deltacron a real thing? <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, I, I heard that on the news as well, and I, I kind of had this pit in my stomach thinking, goodness, we now have variants that sound like you know, Transformers from the 1980s or, or something. It's, it's, uh, it's getting weird. But, um, you know, I, I think that as we name these different viral strains, and, you know, for, for many of us, this is a new way of thinking about, you know, how viruses, uh, you know, act and behave. In a lot of ways, this is just what viruses do, and, and I think you know when you, when you really dig in and talk to you know virologists and think about uh, uh, you know kind of ha- how each you know whether it's the flu virus that comes around every year or common colds or you know GI bugs that we encounter, th- this is this is kind of the nature of how viruses mutate. They're pretty unstable, um, you know, as, as a as an entity. So, you know, I do think that most of this is just normal viral behavior. Now. What we are seeing with Omicron, and really the kind of the heart of your, of your question that you uh, just, just asked, is that this does seem to be more transmissible. Uh, as best we can tell, you know, it's easier to catch. Um, a shorter time period, you know, in, you know, with a person who is exposed, even with milder symptoms, likely puts you at some substantial risk. Um, we also think that the, the latency period, or how long it takes for a person who has been exposed to begin to show symptoms is a little bit shorter. Um, and, and that would explain why we've seen such a rapid escalation in that peak. 
uh, of, the, of the curves of diagnosis here and, and positivity rates. Um, so I, I think that that's, that is kind of what we are beginning to, to see. Uh, when, when, you ask, when you ask about Delta Cron, you know, obviously that would be worrisome if we had both a highly transmissible version of this virus that was also very, very severe. Um, you know, in terms of the, the mortality and the lung disease that we see. And it's, you know, I think it's a little bit early to tell. I, I was skimming through some of the, the most recent you know, data on that. And though we think that there probably are some viral strains out there that share both of these traits, at this point, we're certainly not seeing that in a widespread way. And I, and I don't believe here in North Carolina that that's a prevalent thing we're seeing today. That's not to say it won't come, but as of this point, hopefully that's a, it can remain a, a, in the news media and out of our hospitals. Right, right. So when, you know, a, a lot of people that listen to our show are caregivers and are taking care of a loved one um, who might be dealing with uh, a chronic illness or um, some other comorbidities, when is the right time to go to the hospital if you've had COVID and you're struggling with symptoms or if you're having another issue and you're nervous about going to the emergency room, when's the right time to go? Yeah, such a, such a good question. And, uh, you know, I, I think one of the, I'll address that in a couple of ways. I mean, I, I think the first is that most patients who have COVID, you know, when, when they show up to the hospital, you know, folks have been sick for a while and, you know, five days, seven days, uh, sometimes even longer, uh, you know, stretching out to a couple of weeks that folks have been struggling with symptoms. And that, what that results in is folks being very dehydrated. It results in folks sometimes even being malnourished. So you don't want to wait until you're, you know, having extreme symptoms to, to seek medical care. That's certainly uh, too late. Um, so, you know, in general, you know, if you if the shortness of breath is getting to the point that it's hard for you to get up and get about, do the things that you would normally be able to do. Um, if you have a, you know, a way to check your oxygen at home, I know a lot of patients and care caregivers do. If that oxygen level is dropping, you know, below your normal, th- those are those are reasons to, you know, to seek some medical care mm-hmm. on the early end. Um, you know, I, I do think that once you are diagnosed, if you're in the, in a high risk group, um, you know, because of underlying medical conditions or immunosuppression or age. Speaking with your provider, um, either your primary care provider or your the emergency department uh, itself, if you're diagnosed there, can be helpful because some of the treatments that we we can offer, um, even though they there are in some limited supply, whether it's monoclonal antibody or some of the newer antiviral medications, these probably have a role in uh, um, making the symptoms less severe if we get get patients on those therapies early. So. Uh, I do think that having a good conversation with your healthcare provider can be of value there, uh, for sure. That's a great, great segue. Uh, you mentioned monoclonal antibody treatments. That's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> I recently had COVID. Yeah. It's something the health department actually, when they're texting you right after you are diagnosed with COVID, um, also boosted and vaccinated COVID, um, that's something that they mention. Is this something that's available for the public or is it just for hospital patients? And what is it? Yeah, great question. <laughs> yeah, so so monoclonal antibodies are it, it is it can be a mouthful, but basically what what an, these antibodies are is the way that our when you think about the way that our body fights infection, um, you know, particularly viral uh, you know virus infection, viral infection, uh, we use these antibodies, which are proteins that are made to identify these uh, other um, kind of the the part of uh, the viral. Um, structure that is not ours. So it recognizes it as being something foreign, something different. 
and it can go in and attack those things. But it takes us a while to make antibodies of our own. So if I'm exposed to a virus, it might take two or three or five days for me to really mount an antibody response that's appropriate to neutralize the virus. When we give monoclonal antibodies, we actually can give artificial antibodies uh, in, to a patient that then can help go out and neutralize that virus early. So it kind of gives us a head start in viral neutralization. So, mm. um, you know, I, I think that it's it's a it's ideally it's a treatment that is used early. Uh, you asked, is it you know is it you know for pre-hospital patients or you know hospitalized patients? It's actually, you know, at Weight Med, our policy is almost exclusively to use it before hospitalization. Oh wow! There's probably very there's very little uh, data and value for using it in a patient population that's already having many of the downstream effects of, of later COVID. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the real value of a monoclonal antibody treatment is going to be in the pre-hospital setting. Mm-hmm. Um, we do think that it still adds value uh, with Omicron. It, it's probably not quite as good as we saw with Delta, but I think that it still has value. Um, and then the other, you know, kind of big arm that, you know, has been in the news some is these, is these oral agents or pills, basically, that you can take. Um, uh, it, it's for those that are familiar with Tamiflu, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is the, you know, for, for kind of the, a pill for, uh, you know, the flu virus that's been out for many years. Um, it's kind of the sim- a similar premise. It's a, it's a pill that is kind of an antiviral uh, that may lessen uh, the, the severity of the disease. And those are just coming to market, and, and we're working on getting those distributed and our, our supply ramped up. So hopefully lots of options here in the future for you know, trying to help keep people well and help keep people out of the hospital. That's great news. Uh, you mentioned the flu. I, I also heard this great new buzzword, flu-rona. Uh, is, that yeah. a, is that a real yeah. thing? And are you guys starting to see an increase in flu cases as well? Yeah, I saw that come across, and again, it's, it's, we're making up all sorts of words, but it's, um, you know, it, it, it is a, um, you know, so, so co-infection, meaning you, you can, being infected with a couple of different, you know, viruses, it is possible. We, we've seen a very small number of this, uh, you know, thankfully over the last couple of years, our influenza cases have been incredibly low, uh, you know, really throughout the world, mm-hmm. uh, honestly. There's been a slight uptick in that. But, you know, North Carolina influenza cases are much lower than they, they have been in prior years and most other years. Um, you know, there, there probably is um, a uh, some predisposition after you've had one respiratory or pulmonary illness uh, to be, you know, uh, to be infected with a secondary one. Mm-hmm. Um, frequently, that can be in a, a second virus uh, or it may also be a bacterial infection. So something you know, like a staph pneumonia or uh, you know, in, any number of different, you know, bacterial pneumonias that we frequently see in the hospital. So, you know, I think that we, you know, again, we see those from time to time. I, at this point, that's not a huge concern for us in ICU. Um, and honestly, at this point, the, the things that we know are, are good and best practices, you know, having your, you know, your vaccines, you know, your influenza, influenza vaccine, if you're at a high risk, uh, and then uh, certainly your COVID vaccine, and then, you know, good hand washing and all, all the things that we know uh, help keep us well are going are gonna to apply here as well. So hopefully we don't get a big surge of this. And um, if we do, you know, I think the care will be largely the same as it is now. But uh, hopefully that's not something that uh, we have to deal with in, in huge quantities. Yes, fingers crossed. One final question for you. Do you foresee this slowing down in the coming weeks? Or are we ever going to be at a point where herd immunity is a reality? <sighs> Man, I sure hope so. Um, I, you know, I, I, uh, my, my general sense is that, you know, when we look at data from, from areas of the world that are ahead of us with this Omicron surge, when we look at South Africa or we 
begin to look at um, the UK or here in the States, when we look at New York City, who's, who's probably a couple of weeks ahead of us, we, we look at that data very, very closely. Um, you know, the, the silver lining to what we are dealing with now, even though we're all very busy and our hospital system is, you know, here locally are very busy, um, is that this does seem to have a very steep, you know, upswing in the diagnosis curve, but I think it's going to have a pretty steep downswing on the backside, we hope. Um, that seems to have been the pattern, certainly down in South Africa, and we're beginning to see some of that, um, you know, in both the UK and in New York. Um, in the ICU, that, that, that downswing is slower uh, because patients who end up in the ICU are, you know, they're sick for longer, and it just takes a while to get, uh, for folks to, to get better and, mm -hmm. and for the ICU to empty out, you know, these COVID cases. But I really hope that we get to that point where, you know, the, the curves come down pretty quick. You know, with respect to herd immunity, uh, you know, I, I think that's that's kind of the holy grail with this virus. If we can get enough patients who have either, you know, had had good boost, had vaccination and have immunity that way, or who have you know been exposed to it, or have a combination of those two things, it, it would certainly be our hope that this these these big spikes with high prevalence and you know high disease burden will will uh, kind of flame out over time, and we'll have less and less of that. So. Again, that's, that's a better question for the epi epidemiologists of the world, but man, that, that, that sure is where we hope we all get and that this is uh, nothing more than kind of a, a distant memory to all of us here in the next few years. That is the voice of Dr. Daniel Fox, Medical Director for Pulmonary and Critical Care for the Wake Med Health System. Dr. Fox, we, we thank you so much for being so generous with your time today and for really helping us understand more about the current situation with COVID-19. I mean, we we tend to get things in little bits and bites from the news cycle. So I, I think really sitting down and getting a, a nice long perspective was very helpful. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you guys. Mm -hmm. We're taking a quick break, but we'll be back with more. Stick around. You're listening to Aging Matters. Care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. If you have questions for the show, you can email agingmatters at transitionslifecare.org. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. We are now switching our focus to adult daycare centers and the benefits that they can provide to caregivers. And we are very pleased to welcome another Mary on the show. We've got Mary Arthur, director of the Glade Adult Daycare Day Center at Glen Eyre. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. So not many people know what an adult daycare center is. Can you start us off there and tell us what is an adult daycare center and maybe some of the advantages of uh, what this service can provide for a caregiver? Sure, I would love to do that. So yeah, that's very true that when people are considering their care options for an aging loved one, they often don't think of adult day. Often the first thing that you might think of is in-home care or maybe assisted living or even a nursing home. So um, adult day, we always say, is 
sometimes forgotten, but it is really a wonderful option for caregivers who are caring for a loved one in their home. It is what adult day basically is, is a safe space where caregivers can bring their loved ones during the day, um, where they can participate in stimulating activities. They can socialize with their peers. They get healthy meals. They exercise all while providing the caregiver not only the opportunity to maintain a job and go to work, but also mm-hmm. just to get some much needed respite during the day so that they can, you know, take a nap if they want to, they can go to doctor's appointments, they can run errands, anything that they need to do that they are not able to do while caring for their loved ones. So it's really a good option because it, I always say that Half of what we do is for the care receiver or the participant, as we call them. Mm-hmm. And then the other half of what we do is for the caregiver because Adult Day offers so many great benefits to our caregivers. Mm-hmm. It's such a great point you bring up. You know, there's this new generation of caregivers that are called the sandwich generation. Mm-hmm. They're taking care of their parents, and they're also taking care of their children still. And I, this is such mm-hmm. a great option for someone who falls into that category that can still spend time with their children, but also get additional help for their parents as well. Um, yes. that's There's so many benefits there, I can see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, exactly. That's so true. And I lately have been seeing more and more of that sandwich generation. I've Mm -hmm. recently interacted with a caregiver who is taking care of her mom in her home. And she also has a very young child that she's caring for. So she's got Mm. her young daughter in in childcare. And then her mother is at our adult day center. So, um, you know, people have these stresses of, of raising a child while also trying to care for an aging parent and you could, wouldn't be able to imagine the types of stress that those caregivers are experiencing. Um, and I think the, the biggest issue for our caregivers is just general burnout and stress. Mm-hmm. And the best way we think to combat that is to be able to take a break. And as a caregiver, that is sometimes impossible. They're, you know, they struggle to find ways that they can really take time for themselves Mm -hmm. and um, many of them don't know that there is the adult day option out there and it's also a very affordable option so when caregivers think gosh I can't I can't afford to pay for someone to take care of mom while I go do my errands or go to my doctor's appointments but um, adult day is out there and it is probably the most affordable care option that there is. Who are these services appropriate for? You know, I think about my grandfather who I help take care of. He doesn't have dementia issues. Is it appropriate for those that aren't just dementia related, but also who may need a little more socialization during the day? Yes, yes, absolutely. So we do tend to see a majority of our participants who do have, you know, some type of cognitive impairment or um, age-related illness, but it is very appropriate not only for people who who aren't safe to be left alone during the day, but it's also great for people who are isolated at home and they don't get as many opportunities to interact with their peers. So this is a great way for them to come somewhere 
where they are safe and they do have some supervision if they need it from staff, but it's a great way for them to be able to socialize with others and to do stimulating activities. We do arts and crafts every day. We exercise. Um, we do lots of musical activities. So it is such a good way to keep a person's cognition stimulated, which as we all know, that is important for anybody, but mm -hmm. especially people as they are aging. So someone does not have to have cognitive impairments in order to attend an adult day program. I have many people here who they are fine to be at home by themselves during the day. They just don't want to. They want to get out of the house and they want to be somewhere where they can be active and be around others. That's a great point. Um, when mm -hmm. you, you touched on this previously before, is food provided in the adult day centers? Yes. Yes, ma'am. It is. It is included in the cost. We provide a lunch and then snacks as well throughout the day. And that is typical for most of your adult day centers that they do provide healthy meals. There's usually a dietitian that approves mm -hmm. the meals that are provided. And for many caregivers, they they may struggle to get their loved ones to, to eat healthy meals while they're at home. So when you send a loved one to an adult day program, you have that guarantee that they are getting a well-balanced, healthy meal and that they have staff here who have techniques that they can use to encourage them to eat a healthy meal, which is something that a caregiver may struggle with a little bit more at home. That's wonderful. It, mm -hmm. in, when is the best time to enroll a loved one in adult, adult day centers? You know, maybe people wait too long or um, and they're at a point where their loved one is really having trouble with social isolation or uh, other issues. Mm -hmm. Is there a best time to enroll somebody in these centers? Yes. So I always recommend that you do search out your care options sooner rather than later, because there does come a point where a person may have declined to a point that they might not even be able to attend the center. You know, they might not be able to get out of the house anymore, um, or they just may not be willing to leave the home. So it's important to get them acclimated to adult day or whatever kind of care option that they may be utilizing. Um, so that the person can become comfortable with the people there and can build up a good routine while they are still cognitively able to understand what is going on and are able to physically and mentally participate in the activities that we do. That's wonderful. Are there transportation options or is it all provide your own transportation to these centers? Yeah, so our center in particular, we do not provide transportation. Many centers do happen to provide their own transportation, but what I always encourage people to do is to seek out public transportation. Mm -hmm. We're located in Cary, and so the town of Cary has a great door-to-door -door van service that caregivers can utilize. Um, there's also some options through home care agencies that contact contract with um, Uber or Lyft to provide transportation. So even if the center does not provide their own transportation option, there's many resources out there because we know that, you know, caregivers struggle with their schedule, getting to work, running errands, going to appointments. So the issue of transportation can be a big problem. So if the center does not provide it, there's lots of resources out there. And most likely, 
the program would be able to connect the caregiver with those transportation resources. That's great. Uh, one last question for you. How are these services paid for? Does long-term sh- uh, care insurance come in? Is it private pay? Do insurances cover? What does that look like? Sure, yes. Yeah. So um, mo- health in- just general health insurance generally does not cover adult day. Long-term care insurance is the big one that would cover mm-hmm. the cost of adult day. That's typically for, for our program. We do, it's a lot of private pay that you're going to find out there for adult day, but then long-term care insurance will reimburse for adult day centers. Um, Some centers that are a medical model, which is a model that provides nursing care and hands-on care, they accept VA benefits at times, and then some programs also accept Medicaid, which can pay for adult day centers. So there's several different payment options out there. Mary, we're uh, almost out of time here. An- another quick question for you. For those who uh, maybe have been listening to this and, you know, in your experience, you you probably have people who think, oh, this is a, a great opportunity or a great service, but maybe they're a little bit hesitant. You know, in your experience, what, what what's one of the more popular reasons that people might have to be hesitant and a follow-up to that is you know do you have a a story you can share of someone overcoming that hesitancy and and the change that it's provided them sure sure yeah so i will say the biggest reason why people do not seek out adult daycare is because they feel guilty Mm -hmm. um a lot of caregivers think they should be able to care for their loved ones on their own at home they have trouble asking for help and they the big thing is that they think their loved one is going to be resistant and they don't want to send them somewhere where they might be uncomfortable or um, will be upset about where they've sent them so guilt is a really big thing that caregivers struggle with and something that I tell my caregivers is to just you have to realize that as a caregiver that is a normal emotion that you may feel is you're gonna at times feel guilty for the choices that you make but it's important that you do this for yourself and it's important that they take care of themselves and I um, just recently enrolled a participant whose caregiver said you know my mom's fine she's well taken care of she has everything she needs but I am not fine. I am the one who is struggling and I feel so guilty about this. And she got to the point that she was physically ill. She got physically ill because she was so burned out and she finally came around and said, look, we're going to try this. And she couldn't be happier with her decision. And that's a a lot of caregivers get into that situation where they um, are mentally and physically just sick and they are totally burned out. So they finally decide to do it. And they are so glad that they jumped in and made that decision. Self-care is such an important part of being a caregiver. So uh, if this is a resource that you can make use of, um, you know, please pursue it. Mary, what's the best way for folks to find more information about the Glade Adult Day Center at Glen Eyre? Sure, they can visit our website. Um, that is glenair.org slash the Glade. We also have a Facebook page if they just search the Glade Adult Day Center at Glen Air. They can see lots of pictures of the fun things we do. And then my direct line, if they'd like to set up a time for a tour, it is 919-447-4494. Again, that phone number, 919-447-4494 
or online at glenair.org slash The Glade. She is Mary Arthur, Director of The Glade Adult Day Center at Glenair. Mary, thank you so much for your time today and for share, uh, shining the light a little bit on adult daycare centers. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. We're taking a quick break, but we'll be back. Stick around. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. You are listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. Jason Kong here with... Mary Lucas, as we wind down the show here, Mary, um, you know, we talk a lot about uh, right sizing and Mm -hmm. moving in our senior years. And uh, you just had an experience with downsizing. Let's talk about that. Yeah, definitely. It's a timely topic. Uh, my my grandfather, who I've talked about a bit on this show, uh, had a two-bedroom uh, independent living apartment. So it's two bedrooms and a kitchen. His second bedroom they used as an office for a while. My grandmother has passed since they had moved in, and so it's just been a lot of room. Uh, and we've been thinking for a while about how we can help him save money. As you know, um, and I've mentioned on the show before, we have private duty nursing coming in and that's a daily thing and the the cost of all these uh, services can add up pretty quickly um, on top of an independent living facility which is not very cheap for those who um, have researched it so over the holidays we did a bit of thinking and working on our finances for the new year and it seemed like the most fiscally responsible option would be to downsize him. Um, Little did we know what we were getting into, uh, which is is just a lot. Um, And as soon as you say the word downsize to to your loved one, who may not be completely aware of that conversation happening on the back end, um, you know, my dad helps manages the financial side of things. And so when the conversation came up with my grandfather, it immediately set in anxiety. Um, The thought of moving your place, moving to even the other side of building. We weren't even really moving him out of the building. We were moving him to another hallway on the building, to a one bedroom. Uh, And the thought of that alone just sparked tons of anxiety. Um, So it was a really good lesson learned for me, and I wanted to share some tips. Um, But before I dive into that, I will say that before we decided to downsize him to the one bedroom, we did a bit of research. Um, And it's something that I suggest for anyone who is dealing with the situation, whether it be in an independent living facility or at your home, um, and you have private duty caregiving coming in already, and you're considering a move, maybe think about an assisted living option um, because it combines all of those things into one uh, new package. So for example, for us, we did a lot of research on um, if we, instead of downsizing, could we move him to an assisted living facility that provides the um, the nursing that he needs to help him bathe, do his laundry, clean his apartment, make sure he's fed. Uh, so he would have three meals a day at a facility like that. Uh, whereas where he is now, we are sending a private duty uh, caregiver in to help with all of those things. So the pricing, definitely something to consider. 
and look at your different options before you make a decision. Um, that being said, start early. Uh, we are we're up against a very tight timeline with his lease renewal on his uh, two bedroom. Uh, therefore, we were making decisions super quick. Uh, and that limited our options on assisted livings that had availability. Uh, so it was very difficult for us to kind of do that research very quickly um, and find where the availability was and price those options out. Um, and also doing it with my grandfather, who was very stressed out about this whole situation. Um, so start as soon as you possibly can. Uh, at least three months ahead is a good idea. Um, packing and, you know, if you start earlier, you're taking bits and pieces out at a time uh, and downsizing a little bit at a time. So every time that my dad or I or his brothers went over there, we would take a box with us. We would take a stack of papers with us. We would take a thing with us. Um, and you never left empty handed to help take care of some of the stuff that was in his place. Um, and also something that my grandfather also start, started to think about more when he was downsizing is his valuable things and the special items that he wanted to give to people. And he made sure to distribute those before the move uh, so they didn't get lost in the move. Um, and so I think that that was something that was um, that I thought he did very well in the middle of all that stress um, was really thinking about the special items and the valuable things that he wanted to make sure were taken care of. Um, something that we didn't realize uh, when downsizing and and um, I think actually the facility told us this when we were working on it is to make a floor plan um, go and lay out the room and then mark off where your his furniture items are going to be because we really did downsize him quite a bit um, so it came down to even marking off the recliner because he has a one that reclines back and to make sure that his feet are off the floor a lay flat recliner um, make sure that it fits because when it lays down flat it is very big <laughs> um, so uh, go in with masking tape and draw it out on the floor uh, before you start moving things. Um, that saves a lot of time and also a lot of headache if you're moving a giant bed and the bed doesn't fit. Um, and also it, it makes the conversation easier on the front end with you can't have three dressers in your bedroom. Um, <laughs> you need one. <laughs> you only have so many button-up shirts. Um, so I think that that was very helpful for us. And then going room by room um, and saving uh, only saving space for the absolute must. Um, so bringing your essentials and really thinking and narrowing that down was very helpful and starting small. Um, go with the practical items like your kitchen, your bathroom, um, the emotional stuff. He A big thing for him was he wanted to make sure that it felt like home and that was important for us too. So get all the family photos and the things on the walls that are important and make the place feel like home and make sure that those are moved in day one. Uh, so it's comfortable, it eases some of that stress and anxiety um, and makes it more comfortable. Um, so that's been something that was very big for us. And the first thing he said when I walked in after he moved was, look at the photos on the wall. Um, <laughs> we're missing that one though. And so I, I think that that was very important to him to make sure that it still felt and looked like home. Um, and toss things away. It's a great time to organize and, um, you know, label things and 
take that giant stack of bills from the 1980s that you don't need anymore. <laughs> My grandpa is definitely a financial numbers guy. He's very big into that. He has saved every single bill. Um, so you can toss those now. Uh, we don't need your light bill from 1982. Um, so those, that was all very important. And it's just, it's been a, it's been a process. Um, for all of us, it's been quite stressful. Uh, but in the long, on the long run, we're saving over a thousand dollars a month. Um, just thinking about his finances and the long-term scheme of things, that's huge. Um, it gives us, it gives him an extra day of nursing that we weren't able to provide before, um, and it, it really lets us think longer term about his finances and, and where we need to be. Um, so while it was difficult and put us all through the stress of the holidays, <laughs> probably the worst time you can do it. That's maybe another great tip. Don't pick the holidays <laughs> to move your loved one. Do that in the spring when you're not worrying about uh, all the other things. And then COVID, um, on top of all that, you know, in the middle of all of this, I I actually got COVID, and so I was not able to help with the move. Um, I helped before the move, and I've been helping since the move. But um, I'm, conveniently enough, COVID hit me in the middle of the move, um, so it knocked me out for for that, um, which maybe was a blessing. <laughs> well, I'm glad your grandfather's got his his new place, and it sounds like everything worked out and. Uh, as often, uh, this, this seems to come across often on this show, but the advice start early, I think applies to a lot of the, the topics that we discuss on this show. So if you are looking at potentially making a move, uh, um, I think it's wonderful what you guys did and just sort of assessing the situation and saying, hey, you know, we, we can save a couple bucks by going to assisted living and get more care, which is wonderful. And, you know, kudos to you and your family, Mary, because, uh, again, uh, I love that you all are uh, approaching this as a team, you know, it's not just falling on mm -hmm. one person and boy, I, I can only imagine what that would have been like if it were only on the shoulders of one family member, as opposed mm. to, uh, two or three people that, that really helps out. So hopefully, uh, you can, uh, learn from Mary's experience and, uh, get the ball rolling early. If, uh, any of this could apply to you. We are out of time for today. Thank you so much to our guests for helping us put together a wonderful program. If you want to learn more about Transitions Life Care, be sure to go online to transitionslifecare.org, transitionslifecare.org. On behalf of Mary Lucas, I am Jason Kong, thanking you for listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5. AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.